So um, let's begin talking about the really important things in life, uh, which right now in Australia is tennis, isn't it? Um, I'm not a tennis... Sorry, there's people in the front row like, I don't like tennis. Uh, I'm not... I, f full confession, I'm not really a massive tennis fan. I like sport generally. I'm not a massive tennis fan, but... Um, I still confess, like, I'm on the uh, Ash Barty bandwagon, right? Yeah. So, yeah, there's people. So um, yeah. I watched uh, my first um, game of tennis on TV last night mm -hmm. in a long time. Yeah. Um, I watched uh, what was history because, as someone said to me, like, an Australian hasn't won the Australian Open for, I don't know, 40-something years, yeah. so, you know, since I was, I was a little kid. Um, and, and, and after the game, there's all of that, uh, that sort of talk and commentary that comes after the game and inevitably people start talking about um, Ash Barty's age and what she's accomplished and in the last couple of years. And someone started mentioning that word. They started saying, could she be the goat? Uh, now, when I was a kid, the goat was an animal. Um, but goats, does anyone know, everyone know what the goat is? Um, the goat now is... GOAT stands for the greatest of all time. That's what a GOAT is. So when you say someone is the GOAT, that they are the greatest of all time. So people are starting to say, you know, could Ash Barty be the tennis GOAT? And of course, anytime you, anytime you make a statement like that or, or you bandy that word around, you get all this argument straight away, don't you? Um, because, you know, who is the tennis GOAT? Is it, is it Federer? Is it Djokovic? Is it Serena Williams? Uh, is, it, is it someone sort of from yesteryear like Margaret Court? Because um, now people are saying, uh, like looking at tonight, if, if uh, this is a bit of a tennis kind of nerdy, but if Rafa Nadal wins tonight, he will have now then won more Grand Slam tournaments than either Djokovic or Federer. So does that make him the tennis goat? And, and people love these sort of arguments about who is the greatest of all time? Um, if you're a basketball fan, then that's an argument between Michael Jordan and LeBron James. You know, and there's the Jordan camp over here and there's LeBron James camp. Who is really the greatest basketballer of all time? Uh, if you're a cricket fan, um, then it becomes an argument between uh, sort of modern greats, people like Tendulkar and some of these people, and then there's still people that say, no, 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 Sir Donald Bradman. He's the greatest of all time. Yeah, but look, he didn't score as many centuries. Yeah, but it was a different time. And, you know, these sort of arguments, people love arguing about who's the greatest of all time. Who is the goat? But there's one part of that discussion that no one argues with, right? There's, there's only one rule in these discussions. Did you know there's only one rule in discussions about who's the greatest of all time? And that's this simple rule. You can't ever say that you're the greatest of all time, right? That's the, that's the only rule. You have to point to someone else. So even when someone, when someone asks Federer who's the greatest of all he has to suggest that it's someone else. Only other people can say that you're the greatest of all time, right? You can, it doesn't matter what the statistics say. doesn't matter what everyone else says. You can never say that you are the greatest of all time. But as they say... There's an exception to every rule. Uh, we're in a series that we're calling Jesus All Grown Up. Uh, and we said that we celebrated Christmas uh, in our Tide community, like most Christian churches celebrated Christmas with a baby in a manger. And we found ourselves in that season asking, what happened to that baby in the manger? What kind of man did the baby grow up to be? And, and so that's what this series is all about. We've been digging into the life of the man, Jesus. 
And we've been asking ourselves, what are the things that made Jesus, Jesus? What are the big ideas, the themes, the, the key things that he did and talked about that made Jesus, Jesus? And underlying that is this question asking, what is it about Jesus that makes us still be talking about him 2,000 years after his life and his death? We were talking about a whole bunch of things, uh, but particularly things that Jesus said, statements that he made, and statements that he made repeatedly, things that were sort of themes in what he talked about over his life. Uh, we've talked about things that he said around how we approach God, how we treat one another, uh, what happens after we die. And uh, I mean, if you're kind of listening uh, for the first time today, or if, you, if you're new here, I encourage you, all of our uh, all of our messages are on YouTube and uh, Apple uh, Podcasts and Spotify, and you can you can go back and uh, you know and listen to the rest of this series. But today, I, I want to suggest to you that there is one thing, there is one thing that Jesus focused on more than any other. There, in fact, there was one thing that all four of Jesus' biographers. That's Matthew, Mark and Luke and John who sat down to write biographies of Jesus. There's one thing that all of his biographers would tell you is the most important thing you need to know about Jesus. In fact, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John would go a step further. They would say, and they did say in their biographies, in fact, this is the reason we wrote these biographies in the first place. There's just one thing that really made us write these biographies in the first place. Do you want to know what that is? Are you ready? Are you ready? This is the one thing Matthew, Mark and Luke and John would tell you is the most important thing you need to know about the man Jesus. And this is it. Jesus said he was the Messiah and he backed up that claim with action. Now I'm aware that right at this point no one's going bananas and cheering. Right? Which is actually what you should be doing. So let me go back a bit and, and try and unpack this and sort of explain this. Um, because if Matthew, Mark and Luke and John were here, at that point they would be going absolutely nuts. So let's go back to the beginning and see if we can make sense of this. And when I say the beginning, I mean the beginning of the beginning. Because the story of God and his people begins with a perfect world. We read this in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. We read about a God who creates a perfect world, a world where there is peace, a world where there is no death, there is no violence, there is no hate, a world where people live in harmony with one another, they live in harmony with nature, and they live in harmony and in unity with God. But all of that changes in Genesis chapter 3. When a serpent, or as some Bibles say, a snake, uh, enters the picture and entices the people to rebel against God. And the snake has a, has a pretty simple message, which is, you don't need to listen to God. You don't need to listen to, to God and all his rules and all his plans. You know, you can do your own thing. You can be free. You can be your own boss. You can make your own decisions in life. And the people listen to the serpent, they listen to the snake, and they rebel against God. And they get their way. 
They, they get their way to make their own decisions and to be their own boss. And the world turns into a total mess as a result. People become selfish and greedy and hateful, anger and violence and ultimately death into the world. And all of a sudden people find themselves in conflict with one another, in conflict with nature and ultimately in conflict with God. And it's a sad picture that we still see played out every day in our media, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our marriages. But hidden in that story, hidden in that story of rebellion and, and, and brokenness, is one super important detail that lots of people miss when they first read it. You see, when this story all blows up, when people rebel and, and, and kind of God realises and all sort of comes to a head, God speaks. And you can read about this in Genesis chapter 3. God speaks. God speaks to people, speaks to Adam and Eve, and God speaks to the serpent. And when God speaks to the serpent, he says this, amongst other things, he says this, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, notice talking about a singular person, a singular offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God says right from the beginning of that brokenness that a person is coming, an offspring of the woman, one offspring of the woman is coming who will crush the head of the serpent, who will crush the head of sin and death and hate and violence and mess. That's the opening line, that, that one little line there, that's the opening line to a story that will consume the story of God and his people for thousands of years to come. God will repeat that promise and, and, and he will repeat and sort of flesh out that stories in generations to come. A number of generations later, God will speak to a man called Abraham. You might have heard of him if you've kind of been around church. Well, God will speak to a man like Abraham and he will say, Abraham, blessing will come to the whole world through your family. This, this chosen one, this special person is coming through you and through your kids and grandkids and offering. God will say the same thing to Abraham's son Isaac and to his son Jacob and to his son Judah. Uh, throughout the next hundreds and, and thousands of years, God will speak through a whole number of people. People the Bible usually calls prophets. They're people who sort of speak into the world and into the community on behalf of God. And he will say all sorts of things about this special person, all sorts, of, all sorts of things about this chosen person, what they're going to be like, when they're going to come, where they're going to come, what they're going to do. And the world watches and the world waits and the world hopes for this person to come. All while the world spirals deeper and deeper into hate and mess and violence and sin. Ancient Hebrews had a word for this chosen people, they, this chosen person. They gave a name to this person 
and they called this person, this person that they were hoping for and waiting for, they called this person the Messiah. Later on, centuries later, uh, Greeks would translate that word and they would call this person the Christ. Messiah and the Christ. When you read those two words in your Bible, same thing, just translated in different languages. This is the world that Jesus was born into. Jesus is born into a world of people who are watching and waiting and hoping for God to send the Messiah. They're watching and they're waiting and hoping for God to send someone who will fix the mess that the world's in and restore the world to the way it was supposed to be, the way it was designed to be in the very first place. And baby Jesus in the manger would grow up into a man who would say to the world gathered around him, I'm that guy. It is awesome. And the biography writers, Jesus' biography writers, they want you to know that they believe Jesus is that guy too. Matthew opens his biography, the very first words, Matthew 1, chapter 1. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Mark opens his biography saying, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. John goes the other way. He concludes his biography. The last two verses of his biography read like this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Luke begins his biography with the story of an angel coming to Mary, uh, this young unmarried girl, and giving her a message. And this is the message that the angel gives to Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Those words, they're all Messiah references. The whole son of God, reign over, uh, you know, David's throne, Jacob's descent. They're all Messiah references, all things that prophets and, and, uh, and others have been speaking over generations before. I mean, Messiah is why Matthew and Luke include those genealogies at the beginning of their book. Have you ever tried to read those books and there's this whole like chapter where it goes, this person was the son of this person, was the son of this person? You think, who cares? The whole point of that is to prove to you that Jesus is Messiah. Because there's all this stuff in the Old Testament when he spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And so the only reason those genealogies are there is so that you can connect Jesus to those guys. Does that make sense? It's why all four biographers have the story of Jesus' baptism. And in that baptism, God speaks and says, this is my son. It's a declaration that Jesus is the guy. And, and actually, so many of the stories that we read in the Bible are, are written in a way to point us to the fact that Jesus is Messiah. I'll give you just a couple of examples. You could do this with just about any story uh, in one of Jesus' biographies. 
So Matthew tells a story where Jesus calms the storm. You might have heard this story if you've been around church. It's a Sunday school classic. I'll read it to you. Uh, Matthew 8, uh, beginning in verse 23. Then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up over the lake so that waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And that's not, over dramatic. that's not overly dramatic. Remember, there's no EPIRB, right? There's no GPS. There's no sat-nav. They're in a small boat in the middle of a lake. Um, and, and remember, they can't swim, right? No one could swim in this day. So they genuinely think they're going to drown and Jesus is asleep. Verse 26, Jesus replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves. And it was completely calm. The men were amazed and they asked, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now it's really easy for us to read that story and think, This is a cool story about a guy who calmed the storm. I wish I knew Jesus could do that. I would have asked before my last birthday party I had in the park and, you know, it rained and the whole thing was a mess. Should have just asked. But I would, that's not the point of this story. Look at the climax of the story. The climax of the story is the disciples saying, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the moment when the disciples say, what kind of guy has power over the weather? The answer is the Messiah. That's who. Like no one else can control the weather. Do you know what I mean? Only the Messiah can do. That's the point of this story. Mark tells us that one day um, a group of friends drag a paralyzed man, one of their friends who was paralyzed, they drag him to Jesus. Um, this is Mark chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 5. Um, they drag their, uh, their friend to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, so you got a lot of faith to drag your friend here and think something's going to happen. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, at which point in the story you should all be going, We brought a guy here who can't walk. I thought it was fairly obvious what we were, you know, what we wanted here. And Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven, right? It's so the point of the story you're supposed to go, Well, something's going on here, because Jesus is clearly not picking up what they're putting down. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Now, some teachers of the law who were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit uh, that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say? Uh, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, your mat, get up take your mat and walk? Listen to this. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. Listen, this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Why is Mark telling this story? This is not a story about healing. This is a story about forgiveness of sins. This is not about the guy getting up and walk. The whole point is that the teachers of the law say, 
Whoa, 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 whoa. He can't say don't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus responds and says, I want you to know that I've got authority to forgive sins. Do you get it? He's using their question to make a point that this is who I am. And look at the climax of the story again when the disciples and the people gathered around say, we've never seen anything like this. We've seen healing before. We've seen wise teaching before, but we've never seen anything like that. What are they saying? This is different. This is Messiah. That's the point of this story. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John want you to see what they saw. That Jesus kept doing things and saying things that pointed to himself as Messiah. But this creates all a little bit of a problem or a moment of awkwardness for us sitting here in the 21st century because most of us have not grown up in a traditional Jewish culture. Most of us don't know any of those Old Testament prophecies. Most of us are not waiting around for the Messiah. You know, we're not going, could this be the year? Right? Most of us are not living like that. In fact, the reality is most of us don't really know what the Messiah means. Yeah, you may have heard the word, but, but most of us have no real idea what Messiah is all about. And so when Matthew and Mark and Luke and John want you to know that Jesus is Messiah, no one cheers and no one goes bananas because we don't really get Messiah. Even worse, actually, we get confused by most of these Messiah references and they, they kind of muddle the stories and mix them up. I mean, how many people have ever thought, I'm going to read the Gospel of Matthew, and you get a chapter in and there's a whole genealogy and you're like, ugh, you know? Like, who wants to read through all of this? The, the whole Messiah thing, for most of us, actually tends to be more of a, almost, almost more of a hindrance than a help when we're trying to understand who the heck Jesus is all about. Maybe it would be more helpful if in our minds at least, and I'm not talking about rewriting the Bible here, but if in our minds at least we substituted the word Messiah or the word Christ, that when we read that in our Bible, we substituted it for a statement like God's chosen one sent to fix the sinful mess we've made of the world. That the Messiah is God's chosen one sent to fix the sinful mess we've made of the world. Because then when you started to read Mark's gospel, the first sentence would go like this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, God's chosen one sent to fix the sinful mess we've made of the world. If you substituted those words, then the Gospel of John, his biography would end like this. It would end, but these stories are written that you may believe that Jesus is God's chosen one, sent to fix the sinful mess we've made of the world, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Because the reality is that whether you've heard of the Messiah or not, whether you know the word Messiah or not, we all know what a mess our world is in, don't we? I mean, I did like five minutes of research this week. That's all it took to realise that 
as we sit here this morning, 785 million people. I can't even imagine how many people that is. 785 million people do not have access to fresh drinking water on this earth right now. I can pick up a little black box and put it in my hand and order food and someone will bring it to my house. How do they even know where I live? Meanwhile, 785 million people can't get a drink of fresh water. How messed up is that? The United Nations, uh, if you kind of scan their website, it'll tell you there are more than 40 official wars going on on the planet right now. They classify a war as a conflict in which more than 100 people have been killed. That's a lot of people. There are more than 40 conflicts like that happening on the earth right now. Now, I don't know where you live, but where we live, we live in a state of relative peace. You know, we get upset because the government say we, you know, can't meet with more than X people in our home because of COVID. There are more than 40 places in the world right now where people are killing each other. More than 500,000 people get murdered every year across the globe. Half a billion, half a million, that is, half a million people get murdered. And do you know where most of those murders happen? Within the family. More than 500,000 people get murdered and most of them get murdered by someone in their own family. Over five, despite all that we know and all of our medicine and technology, over 5.5 million people have died with COVID since the 23rd of January 2020. And if all those numbers are too big and it's too hard to get your head around, and I'm a little bit like that, just open a social media thread on anything controversial, even slightly controversial, and read the anger and the hate and the lies and the self-judgment that we are all so easily capable of. You might not know what the prophet Isaiah said about the coming Messiah 700 years before Jesus was born. But you know this world is a mess. You know this world needs hope. You know this world needs a saviour. And Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and James and Paul and the people who believed in what they said and the people who believed in what those people said, they want you to know that there is one God over all of this and he has a plan. And that plan is being accomplished through one perfect, extraordinary human And that is the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And by his resurrection, and by his resurrection, he made clear that he has the power to beat death and to beat sin. And he declared that he is the Messiah. And that's the good news. We talk about good news. That's the good news that followers of Jesus have been sharing for 2,000 years since that moment. They've been sharing who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's going to do. 
Because a day is coming when Jesus will return to sort of finish the job, when the thing that he started, when the hope and the peace uh, and the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of freedom that he won for us on the cross, there's a day coming when he will return to bring all of that to fullness again. John had a vision of that day, and you can find it right at the very end of your Bibles. We began right at the beginning of the Bible, right at the very end of your Bibles. In Revelation 21, he says, had a vision. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Remember, God created a heaven and an earth in the first place. And John says, I see a new heaven and a new earth. Then I had a vision and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. It is beautiful. And I want to say, friends... I know life isn't easy. I'm not pretending that you know the world's a perfect place by any means. I know that we still live in a world that is full of pain and hurt and loss and broken dreams. But I want to tell you, I want to remind you this morning of the message that the baby Jesus grew up to tell you. When he said, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I have come to deal with your sin. I have come to make broken things new again. I have come to bring back to the world hope and joy and peace and purpose. I have come that, that there will come a time when I will wipe every tear from your eye. A time will come when there will be no more death, where there will be no more mourning or crying, or pain. And Jesus says, believe in me and follow me. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John saw that and they experienced that. And they wrote down the things that they saw and experienced so that we could experience the same thing that they experienced. You can believe Jesus died and stayed dead. You, you can believe that he was just a man. You can believe that maybe he was a guy with some interesting ideas. You can even believe that Jesus was pretty cool. You can believe that he was really wise. You can believe that he was a terrific teacher. You can even believe that he did some miraculous things, some weird things, that he healed people. and he, uh, you, know, you can even believe that he raised someone from the dead. But none of that is what Jesus said he was really all about. None of that is what the people who lived with him and saw him and experienced him on earth, none of that is what they would say Jesus was all about. And ultimately, none of that is what the Christian faith is actually really all about, not at its core anyway. We have Christianity today 
because one man stood up and said, I am the goat. I am the, the goat. I am, he broke the rules and said, I'm telling you, I am the goat. I am the greatest of all time. I am the chosen one. I'm the one you've been waiting for and hoping for and dreaming of. I am Messiah. Believe in me and follow me. And I will give you abundant life. I will show you a better way to live in this life and I will give you eternal life beyond this life with me. Friends, that's the story of the man that the baby Jesus grew up to be.